Let's take our Bible and go to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. As you're turning there, I want to let you know that on the back table, there are little flyers, maybe four by six or so, in kind of a dark grayish color. Maybe you've seen them, maybe you've grabbed a little handful. We are hard at work putting all the details together for another prophecy conference that we are hosting right here in the sanctuary, January, I forget what dates, I think it's 6th through the 8th, I think it is, and uh, that's a Friday and a Saturday, and then here Sunday for a couple of hours during the worship time. It will be an awesome time, a great time. We looked at end times a couple of years ago with Doug Bookman and Will Varner, and then last year we had a number of speakers here looking at sort of a big picture overview of end times, and this year... We are going to zoom in on one particular subject, and that is the Great Tribulation. What will happen in the future seven-year period called the Day of the Lord in the Old Testament, primarily in the New, talks about it a little bit as well. The Revelation uh, that we have, the last book of the Bible, gives a lot of detail about that. So mark your calendars for it. It's going to be a great time. Our prayer is that the sanctuary would be shoulder to shoulder. The balcony would be packed out. The lower level overview overflow would be packed out. We just want people to hear the biblical truth from what the Bible says about biblical prophecy. So you can grab flyers. We've got about 3,000 made. So don't be, don't, be, don't be shy with taking large handfuls and giving them out to all of your neighbors and friends. A lot of people are thinking about end times, aren't they? What's going to happen? Are we living in the end times? Is... is uh, you know, our political leaders, the Antichrist, and all these different things. People are thinking about this kind of thing. So take some of those flyers and you can give them out. Okay, James chapter 1. James chapter 1, uh, we are looking today at verses 12 to 15 in a sermon that I have entitled, The Anatomy of Temptation and Sin. I'm going to begin in verse 2 because I want to give you sort of the flow of where we are in the whole thought of what James has been writing regarding trials and how you and I are to endure them. James 1, beginning in verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like the flowering grass, he will pass away, for the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed! is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. 
Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. There was a man... Let's call him Mr. Man on a Diet. Mr. Man on a Diet was struggling with his diet. And he really craved donuts. He loved donuts. He wanted donuts. He thought about donuts. He desired to eat donuts. One day for work, he had to go downtown. And as he was reflecting on where this appointment was, Mr. Man on a Diet knew that this route to his appointment would take him right past his favorite donut shop. Well, he was driving, and as he got closer, he thought, I'm just going to go to the donut shop and I'll only, only get a cup of coffee. Only get a cup of coffee. Well, then Mr. Man on a Diet remembered he was on a diet and thought that wouldn't be helpful to go to the donut shop in order to buy a cup of coffee. So as he was driving downtown and navigating the city blocks, weakness set in. Temptation came his way, and Mr. Man on a Diet then prayed, get this, then he prayed, Lord If you want me to stop at a donut shop and get a donut and a cup of coffee, would you provide a parking spot right in front of the donut shop? So he arrived, and there was no parking spot. So then he circled the block, and he prayed again, Lord, if it's your will for me to stop for a donut and a cup of coffee, May there be a parking spot right in front of the shop. And there wasn't. But sure enough, on the seventh time around, there was a parking place right in front of the donut shop. Ha! Mr. Man on a Diet Cave. Oh, he he desired donuts, he wanted donuts, he craved donuts. His strong desires led him and lured him and won him and drew him into eating that donut. Can you relate? You ever been there? Interesting progression for Mr. Man on a diet, isn't it? You and I can relate to that. There is a progression into temptation in our lives. There is a progression of temptation and falling and stumbling and giving into sin, and that poses a lot of questions in our hearts, and they're good questions, and they're legitimate questions, and ones that we need to ask. Where does sin come from? Why do I sin? Why do I do what I do? I know my weak spots. You know your weak spots. 
Why are we tempted? Why do we give in? Why do we do that? Now, where is God when I'm tempted? Is God there? Does God tempt me? It's hard. It's hard to go through temptations and resist and run the other way. But is it worth it? Is it really worth it to persevere steadily through the trials? I mean, these are good questions. These are legitimate questions. These are questions that our passage today will answer. Now, as you remember, James is writing this little letter. He's the brother of Jesus. He's the pastor of the early Jerusalem church, and he's writing to Jewish Christians. We read that in verse 1, and he's writing about true saving faith. You say that you're Christians. You say that you follow Jesus. Well, you need to prove it. You need to live it out. You need to have faith in action. It's easy to just say that you're a Christian. The devil knows about God, and the devil has a more robust theology than we do. So we don't just need knowledge, we need faith in action. We need wisdom in all of life. And Pastor James, when he opens this letter in chapter 1, verse 2, he opens the door with a very practical pastoral topic. How in the world are you and I to suffer well? How do we suffer well? In verses 2 to 4, James calls the believers to respond to all trials with joy. We defined joy. We talked about joy. We talked about how to do this a couple of weeks ago. And then in verses 5 to 8, you might say, I hear what you're saying, that I need to consider it all joy when I encounter various trials. But how do I do that? Well, last week, we learned that we need a great wisdom and we need great faith and we need to persevere through the trials. Verses 9 to 11, we also saw that we need great humility as well. We need humility. We can't be confident in ourselves. We have to be humility and utterly dependent upon the Lord. But is it worth it? Is it worth it? Look, life can be hard, and trials can be tough, and people can turn against you, and people might even say, you're foolish for continuing on in this. Is it worth it? And that's where James chapter 1 verse 12 is going to pick up. Is it worth it? Where is God when you're tempted? So as we look at verses 12 through 15 today, I want to give you two significant lessons for Christians who battle temptation. These aren't going to be super profound. You you can write these down and you're going to say, I knew that, but yet I want you to hear it afresh and hear it in context. And I'm going to give a lot of application and then tie this into the gospel as we go through it as well. Two significant lessons. Number one, here's what you need. You need to persevere under the trial. You need to persevere under the trial in verse 12. And then the second significant lesson that you and I need is you need to prepare for temptations. Persevere in the trial 
and then prepare for temptations. Let's look, beginning in verse 12, at the first significant lesson. And oh, how practical this is. I mean, you and I are living in a world full of suffering, full of hurt, full of hardship, full of pain. And yet God gives Christians a perspective that the world doesn't doesn't know about. The world doesn't even have a category for this. So what do you do? What do we do? Number one, you need to persevere under trials. Remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 21 and verse 19? He said to the disciples, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. Well, James is the pastor of the early Jerusalem church, probably writing within a decade after Jesus had died and been raised and then ascended into heaven. And he's exhorting Christians about godly living through their trials. You need to consider it joy. You need to persevere. You need to know that God is always, always, always up to good in your trials. We must have humility. We cannot live for the passing riches and the pleasures of this world. And yet James knows that there is still that lingering question. Yeah, but is it worth it? I mean, is it worth it? Look, we live in a culture in a world where people will do anything to get the pain behind them. They'll do anything to get out of a hardship. You drug it, you drink it, you put a pill, whatever it is, you get out from the hardship. Is it worth it to follow Christ through the trials? And look at verse 12. Look with me at our text. Verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Yes, yes, it's worth it. Yes, it's worth it. Look, here's loving Pastor James. I mean, he's being as real as they get. And he says, yes, you need to persevere through trials because, Christian, you need to know that God will reward you. Let me tell you. Why you need to persevere under trials. First, it's the blessed way. You see in verse 12 here, blessed is a man who perseveres under trials. I love how James is using language from his older brother Jesus. From the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are those who mourn. You you know the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Well, James is using that same language. He's giving a Beatitude, a blessing. And boys and girls, boys and girls, can you look at me for a sec? This is so helpful for you. Because all of us here in this room would tell you, boys and girls, life is hard. And it's going to get harder. And living for Jesus is not always going to be easy. It's not always going to be pain-free. And boys and girls, as you're living life and you grow older and you go to college and get married and all these different things, you need to remember this very important truth. You need to get your commands For living life through suffering from God, not from the world. 
Don't listen to what the world tells you. Don't listen to what social media tells you or movies or Disney or a coach or something. Listen to what God's word tells you. Because verse 12, listen to this. It's the blessed way. It's the good way. It is the best way. It is the happy way. Boys and girls, it may be hard, but God promises blessing in persevering under trial. It's the blessed way, but also, second of all, it's the persevering way. Blessed is the man who perseveres under the trial. Ha! What a word. What a verb. You need to persevere. You need to endure. You got to be steadfast under the trial. I mean, you and I wish, you says, just get the trial out of your life. And this word in verse 12, you see it, persevere, it's the same word that we saw at the end of verse 3. Your faith produces endurance. Verse 4, let endurance. What is this idea of endurance and persevering? It is a fixed direction with a firm purpose. It is a long obedience for the long haul. You're following God for the long haul, even through the fiery trials of life. You have a direction toward God and a depth of unmoved stability. Now, this is important because you and I know people, according to Mark chapter 4, who heard the word of God and they initially receive it with happiness. But just like the seed that falls by the road. What happens? They hear it. They're excited. But then because of afflictions and persecutions and hardships, what do they do? They fall away. They fall away, showing that they were not true believers. And James is saying, blessed is the man who perseveres. You endure. You're in it for the long haul. It's a long obedience. It's also, verse 12 teaches us, the refining way. The refining way. Verse 12, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved. ESV, you have, he stood the test. Another English translation has, he's been proven to be genuine. What's the Greek idea of this? It's a picture of a metal that has been refined with heat and pressure and it's better afterwards. You can take a metal. It might be rough. It might have some difficult, rough, sharp edges. But you, you bring pressure and heat and time, and you can smooth that metal out and make it stronger, more durable, more attractive. And that's what God does. God says it is blessed. It is good for the man who perseveres under trial because when you've been put in the furnace of trial, God refines you. He makes you approved. He chisels away the rough edges. You have stood the test. You have proven to be genuine. Is it worth it to follow God through the trials? Look in your Bible at verse 12, and don't miss the promise. Middle of verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, do you see it here? He will receive the crown of life. This is the rewarding way. I love the promise. Christians live by the promises of God. 
We have a biblical worldview. You see, the world doesn't have this, does it? I mean, the world doesn't have a category for a crown of life in heaven that has nothing to do with their merit before God. But we as believers, we have a biblical worldview as we live knowing that there is life, eternal life to come. And wise is the man who does not live for the present life, but wise is the man who keeps his eyes focused on the next. Let this encourage you, O Christian, the Puritans would say, in your conflicts with Satan and in your trials in life, the skirmish may be sharp, but it will not be long. It may be sharp and it may hurt and it may cut and it may wound, but it will not be long because heaven is soon to come. Yes, the storm clouds may burst over your head, But remember, the blue skies of eternal glory are sure to follow. When James writes the crown of life, he's using language in the Jerusalem church that everybody would have known. This is not a kingly crown. The word here for a crown is an athlete's victory wreath. It's a wreath of laurel or oak or or some flowers, and it was a reward given to the believer who's been victorious in all of the trials. He won, he ran the race, he triumphed. This is not saying that some believers get the crown and some don't. No, 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 don't miss the point. All believers will get the crown of life. Every single one. Paul put it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath or crown, but we do it to receive an imperishable crown. Christian, this is why we live. Our hope is not in this life, in this world only, but our hope is in the life to come, the Savior whom we will behold, and the crown of life that we will receive. One of my favorite letters in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 is the letter of Christ to the church of Smyrna. It's the shortest of all of the seven letters to a very suffering church. Going through all kinds of trials, all kinds of hardships, Jesus even tells them, I know your tribulation, I know your poverty, I know the blasphemy of your enemies, don't fear what you're about to suffer, the devil's about to cast some of you into prison so that you're going to be tested, you're going to have tribulation for ten days, I mean, how would you like to be in that church? But then Jesus said, be faithful until death. And then he said, I will give you the crown of life. Christian, that's the hope and the reward that God gives. This is your future hope. And now back to James 1, look at verse 12. So it is the blessed way. It is the persevering way, the refining way, the rewarding way. But verse 12 ends that Jesus will give the crown of life, which the Lord promises to those who love him. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Do you see the way a Christian is 
described at the end of verse 12? It doesn't say that you'll get a crown of life to those who have been baptized or those who speak in tongues or those who have a special experience with God. James writes to the Christian church, the, the believing community in those early years, and he says he will give the crown of life which he has promised to believers who love the Lord. 1 Peter 1.8, though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said this in chapter 16 and in verse 22, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. The greatest commandment, Matthew 22, is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, how do we love God? What does it look like? Number one, it's shown by submission to him. It's shown, second, by emulation to him. And third, heart affection after him. Oh, it's so often on the streets we hand out a tract to people. I'm, I'm good. I know God. I know Jesus. We're good. Oh, I love him. But what does that mean? A lot of people say they love God. They love Jesus. What does it mean to truly love Jesus? Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. John 14. So it, it's shown by submission to him. It's shown by emulation, imitation to him. And it's also shown by affection. Oh, we just want to commune and fellowship with him. Christian, you need to persevere in a trial. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Answer, yes, it is. You bet. John Wesley knew that it was worth it. And he knew that God had called him to preach. He knew that Christ had saved him and he loved the Savior because the Savior loved him and died for him. And John Wesley said, anything that would cool my love for Jesus Christ is of the world. He wanted a hot and a vibrant and a growing love for the Savior. And so Wesley said, unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you're going to be worn out by the opposition of men. But if God is for you, who can be against you? Are all of them in the world stronger than God? Wesley said, not at all. Don't be weary of well-doing even though you suffer. So here's what he put in his journals. In his journal entry um, from May 5th in the morning, he said, I went to preach in a church in England and I was asked to never come back again because I preached Christ and him crucified. Well, that evening, he went to a different church down the road. He wrote in his journal, I preached at St. John's Church. The deacons held a mandatory meeting and they told me, get out and stay out, never come back. Following Sunday morning, he went to St. Jude's church. He said, I'll never be invited back there again. The following Sunday, he said, I preached in St. Somebody Else's church. I forgot which one it was. And the deacons held a special meeting, and they also told me I could never come back. So the following Sunday morning, I preached on the street. 
But the enemies of the gospel came and they kicked me off the street. So the following Sunday, I went out to a meadow and I preached in the open meadow. And then someone let loose a bull because they didn't like the preaching and the service was immediately over. The following Sunday, Wesley said, well, I I preached on the edge of town. But even then, by the opponents, I was kicked off the highway. Well, then that evening, he said, I preached again in the open pasture to many people who didn't want to hear the gospel. What's the point of all of this? Wesley knew that you need to persevere under the hard trials of life. Why? Because he knew that the crown awaits you. He knew that it was worth it. And he knew what you and I need to know. Persevere under trials. And I don't know what that trial might be in your life. I don't know what the hardship might be. I don't know what the difficulty might be. This week, today, that which will come tomorrow. I don't know. But for a believer in Jesus Christ, it's worth it. You have the crown of life awaiting you, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So number one, you need to persevere under trial. So if you're taking notes, then jot down this second important, significant lesson for us. Number two, you need to prepare for temptation. So this now asks the question, yeah, but what about my temptations? I mean, where, where do they come from? When I'm tempted to sin, when I'm tempted in life, where does that come from? Well, Jesus taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation, Matthew 6. Joseph, a very godly man in Genesis chapter 39, was suffering for the Lord when he was falsely accused, you'll well remember. And of course, he was tempted while doing his duties, but he fled sexual temptation when it came his way, literally. Mark 14, the disciples were tempted, but they failed when they were sleepy. The naive young man, Proverbs 7, boy, is this a very important chapter to read that sort of colors all that we're going to look at here. Proverbs 7, there was a naive young man, probably a teenager. He didn't prepare for temptation. He met a seductive woman. He found out just how costly it is to not be prepared for spiritual temptations. To be unprepared is to be dangerous. It's very dangerous. So where does it come from? Look in your Bible at verse 13. This is very, very key. First, temptations don't come from God. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he, he himself does not tempt anyone. Well, you say, yeah, but, but Jeff, in verses 2 and 3, my Bible says that I'm to consider it all joy when God brings trials into my life. Because God brings the refining trials into my life. To grow me. Yes. God will test you. But God will never tempt you. He will test you. And it might feel like you're in the middle of the fire. 
But he'll never and he can never tempt you to sin. Why? Because the motive is always different. God tests people in order to mature them and grow them in their faith. Temptation is to lure you into sin. God can't do that. God is not tempted by evil. And verse 13 tells us God never tempts anyone. So we can't ever say, well, God made me do it. Well, he didn't. Now, I bet you and I could read verse 13 and say, I get it. I understand it. It doesn't come from God. But yet there's some subtle ways that you and I perhaps blame God for tempting us when we sin. And maybe you think, well, I don't do that. Well, hold on. Let me give you some ways in which we might do this. We can accuse God of tempting us when we blame the providence of God. The state of things, when we blame the people around us. It's as old as the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3. Adam, where are you? Did you eat the fruit? It's the woman you gave me. God, it's, it's your fault. You gave me her. Or, when we ascribe our sin to a lack of divine grace or divine power. It it comes in this phrase. I just couldn't stop. I just had to do it. I had to give in. It's like saying God didn't give me enough grace in the moment. Or maybe we blame God for tempting us Even verse uh, third here, when we blame our hardships on bad luck. Because these are mindless attacks on the goodness of God and the wisdom of God and the care of God and the providence of God. I think another way that verse 13, we can subtly accuse God of tempting us is when I'm just angry and I don't even know why I'm angry. And I just, I just want to hit something. I don't care what it is. I just want to hit something. Blaming God can show itself in being angry and enraged and looking upward and cursing God like Isaiah 8, verse 21. Or... We might accuse God of tempting us when we think of God's situations that he put in our life as forcing us to sin. Well, I I, I had no choice. There was no way out, which the Bible does say. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. And God is faithful who with the temptation will provide the way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. Oh, we we know the theology of verse 13. Yes, our God cannot be tempted by evil and he doesn't tempt anyone. But how often do we sometimes, by the way that we respond to difficulties, we sometimes accuse God. God, why'd you bring this? Where does it come from? Where does temptation come from? I mean, if it doesn't come from God, if it doesn't come from our loving Lord who does test us, but he doesn't tempt us, where do they come from? 
It's like Mr. Man on a Diet at the beginning. Where did the temptations come from? Now, what I'm about to say is hard. Not hard to understand, it's hard to hear. So you have to allow yourself to be humbled by this, okay? Your greatest threat is not outside of you. Your greatest threat is within you. Your greatest problem in life, hear this, is not external. Now, there can be trials and troubles out there. But your greatest problem is not external out there. It's internal within me. What do you mean, Jeff? Look at verse 14. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own desire. Or maybe in the NASB you have lust, desire, craving, Verse 15, here's the anatomy of it. And then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Your greatest problem. So the Bible calls your heart. Maybe there's no area of theology that is as developed in the scripture as the heart. What's the heart? Not the pumping organ in your body. That's not the physical organ he's talking about. It's your desires, your longings. We often say, I just want. It's my craving. We we say, I need, I need that bottle. I need more money. I need that job. I need a respectful wife. I need obedient children. Desires, longings, wants, cravings, needs, passions, ambitions. Our greatest problem is not outside of you. It's within you. And this is what drives us to the grace of God. This is what drives us to the grace of God. So desperately needed, and yet God so delightfully supplies what you need. You and I get angry. We've got a lot of words for it. Irritated, frustrated. He's under my skin. We have a lot of ways that we've redefined it, but it's it's anger. When we're angry, we can't say, well, it's The guy in front of me who's driving too slow. I hit every red light. I'm late for the meeting. No. If you're angry, it comes from your own heart desires. You you overspend. You spend, you spend, you spend, you spend. I just need it. I I feel better when I spend more and I have ample supply. No, no, no. If you overspend, it comes from your own heart desires. If you worry constantly, it comes from your own heart desires. If you lust after a guy or girl in person or online, 
It comes from your own heart desires. And you covet what somebody else has. It comes from your own heart desires. Well, I'm bitter because of what they did to me. I can't, I can't believe what they did to me 10 years ago, five years ago, yesterday. Can you believe that they did that? And you're, you're bitter and you're angry and you want revenge. It comes from your own heart desires on the inside. Brethren, this drives us to the grace of God. It drives us to the grace of God, desperately needed and yet delightfully supplied by our good God. So, verses 14 and 15 give us the anatomy of temptation and sin. So, we are to persevere under trials. Is it worth it? Yes, there's a crown that awaits us. Well, is God messing with you? Well, of course not. God doesn't tempt you. Is God toying with you? Never does God do that. Well, so why do I sin? Where does it come from? Where does it come from? James, in ways that the Bible doesn't give a whole lot of these, like step-by-step progression type things, we have one right here. Now, if you're taking notes, I want to give you the five-fold anatomy into temptation and sin. And they all begin with D, just single words. They all begin with D, five of them. And you can write these down. You can commit them to memory. You can put it in your Bible. You can put it in your car. Wherever you might be tempted, this can be like a fighter verse in the moment of hardship. Because number one, it always begins. Here's the first. With your own desire. Verse 14, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own. I have lust. The connotation is not sexual here. That's not the point. It's just a strong desire, a strong craving. You are tempted and lured away by your own desires. I need You know, one of the questions I ask often in biblical counseling, what do you think you need to be happy? What what do you need each day? Why do you get out of bed and do the things that you do? And what's the great desire of your life? What do you really, really, really want? And you know what? We hear all kinds of answers. I mean, you can hear any answer and every answer, but here's the biblical answer. I really want to glorify God. Yes, if I have a better husband. Yes, if I have a better wife. Yes, if I have a better job. Yes, if I have more obedient children. Yes, if this situation would leave. No, I want to glorify God. I make it my ambition to be pleasing to Him. Our our culture has just become professionals because our hearts have become professionals of craving money, craving comfort. We crave power. We crave sex. We crave control, respect, and we crave health. 
And you, you could fill it. I mean, you, could, you could add 20 or 30 more. What do people crave? What do they need to be happy? It all begins with desire. Here's where the world's thinking and biblical thinking is absolute opposite. The world says, no, the problem is them. The problem is outside of you. The Bible says, oh, no, no, no. The problem is within you. Number one, your desire. Second, if you're taking notes, not just the desire, but then the deception. Now, verse 14 is so clever. And I I wonder if James, the brother of our Lord, was a fisherman. We know that Jesus relocated from Nazareth, uh, Nazareth and then he went to Capernaum. But maybe James also in enjoyed some of the fishing lifestyle as well because he uses a couple of images of that. Look at verse 14. You're tempted, verse 14, notice first, when you're carried away and second, when you're enticed. Or maybe in your English translation, you have lured, you're dragged away, you're baited. Now here's the two verbs. The first verb, when it says in verse 14, you're carried away, that verb is the person who sees the hook and guess that you're, you're, you're on the course and then you leave your course. The fish is just swimming. The fish is swimming and it sees the bait and it leaves the course. That's the first verb. The second in verse 14, not only are you carried away off course, second, you're enticed. You're attracted. Ooh, I want that. You're attracted to the trap by the delicious bait and you're caught. Now, here's how we see this kind of worked out in the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, when the woman saw the fruit of the tree would make her wise, she took. She saw it. She wanted it and took it. 2 Samuel chapter 11, David is not leading the nation out to battle. Rather, he gets up, walks around the roof. He sees a woman bathing. Sees her. He's off course. Sees the bait. And he desires. He craves. He wants. He longs. He needs. And he took her. It's like Joshua chapter 7, when the man Achan went to the city of Ai, and he saw the plunder that God said, you are to burn all of it. And yet he saw the plunder, and he wanted it, and he took it. We all have desires. We all have desires. And having desires is not bad. But we can want good things too much that it then can become sinful. When a good thing becomes a God thing, it becomes a sinful thing. Well, verse 14, each one is carried away when he's carried away and enticed by his own desire. Listen to what John Piper, I think he just nailed it. He said, strong desire and temptation, they get the power by persuading me to believe I will be more happy if I follow this. The power of all temptation is the prospect that it's going to make me happier if I indulge. If I look at that woman. If I go to that place. If I take this for myself. The lie is I'll be happier 
I'll be better off. And sadly, in that moment, I'm not believing that God has given me what I need, but there's something good that he's kept from me. Number one, the desire. Number two, the deception. Number three, the disobedience. The disobedience. Well, well, now, verse 15, then when your lust or your strong desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. So your desires are conceived. So he leaves the fishing imagery and now he transitions into birthing imagery. Your strong desires are such that, oh, I want this. I need it. I'll do anything to get it. I'll sin to get it. I'm lured. I'm baited. I'm enticed. I'm dragged away. Gives birth to sin. Fourth. Fourth. Not only the desire, deception, disobedience. Fourth. The development. The development. Now, this is really sobering. This is sobering because verse 15, then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, I have accomplished in my English Bible. Maybe you have complete in your translation. Maybe you have fully developed. When your sin is full grown, this is a life of sin unrepented patterns of sin. This is Mr. Self-indulging lust. I, I live for myself. These are the people that you know, you work with, you live nearby, the people that you spend time with. This is who you and I used to be before God intervened and saved us. When sin is fully developed. Number five. Death. A life of unrepented sin brings death. Not physical death. James is saying spiritual death. The wages of our sin is spiritual death. When sin is fully developed, it brings eternal death. I mean, do you see the progression into sin here, into temptation here? Thomas Manton was a Puritan. He has a commentary on the book of James. I have been so benefiting from it. It's it's a very easy to read commentary on James by Thomas Manton. He said this on this verse. He said, Christian, either sin must die or the sinner must die. Sin must die or the sinner must die. Now, Christian, we need to know that. We need to know that. Yes, Jesus has conquered our sin, but yet we're living in a world where there is the development of sin. What does it do? It brings death. And even just a sobering reminder for all of us in this room, if there's any sin in your life that you're playing with, you're playing with fire. You can say, Jesus, you can sweep the whole heart on the inside of my life, but don't go to this one closet. I'll repent of 99 of my sins, but not the 100th. 
I want it. I like it. I love it. I need it. It brings me happiness. Don't permit sin. This is not saying that you and I won't sin. It's saying don't permit unrepentant habits of sin in your life. It's been said, just to kind of illustrate all of this, it's been well said that one of the hardest animals to catch is the ring-tailed monkey. The Zulus in Africa know a trick that really many others around the world don't know. They know how to catch the ring-tailed monkey. They say all you do is you take a melon that grows from the vine because they know that the seeds on the inside of that melon are the favorite of the monkey. So they simply just cut a hole in the top of the melon, but it's a tiny little hole. And it's just big enough for a monkey to put his hand real tight and squeeze his hand into the middle of that melon. And then he gets all the seed that he wants. Oh, he found it. He wants it. He craves it. He needs it. That monkey is happy that he has all the seeds in his hand, but now that his hand is clenched, he can't pull it out of the opening. And the only way to get his hand out is to let go and let the seed go. But that he will not do because he wants the seed that much. Easy to catch the monkeys. It's easy. What's the lesson? Guard your desires. Now, before we draw this to a close, I need to clarify some misunderstandings that many can have about temptation. And then I want to apply this with a game plan of application. Misunderstandings of of, of temptation. Well, some people might think, well, if I'm tempted, I have sinned. Well, no. Temptation itself is not sin. Because Jesus was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin, right? So if you are tempted, that does not mean that you have automatically sinned. Second of all, we have to guard from the thinking, well, we just kind of fall into sin. I just kind of stumble into sin. Well, he fell into adultery. No, you didn't fall into adultery. He fell into drunkenness. No, he didn't. It begins with a desire. Remember that progression? That anatomy that we looked at? We don't just stumble. It begins with a heart desire. What do I want? A third misunderstanding that we need to clarify is Some people might think that God is disappointed when you're tempted. Well, God God, God must really be displeased with me when I'm tempted again. And that's not the case. Jesus endured temptation far beyond what you and I could know. Well, what, what about number four? If I'm strongly tempted, I guess that means that I'm as guilty as if I've actually committed the sin. Well, no, it doesn't. It doesn't mean that. Or fifth, maybe another mis- misunderstanding that we, we might have is, well, you just overcome temptation by just getting rid of it. 
Well, you know, if somebody battles drunkenness and they sin and they indulge and they, and, and, and they, and they drink to the point of drunkenness, well, I'll just get rid of all the alcohol. Well, no, that's not going to solve the problem. Because you don't overcome temptation by separation merely. That can be helpful. But the problem is not the bottle. Or for Mr. Man on a Diet, the problem was not the donut. The problem is not the woman or the new fashion or the money. The problem is the desires within me. So, what does that mean for us? Christian, we need to remember that spiritual maturity, Christian maturity is not measured by the infrequency of your temptations. Please hear that. You might think, man, as I get older, I just won't be tempted anymore. No, Christian maturity must be measured by the infrequency of giving in to temptation. You might be tempted a lot like your Savior was. But maturity is measured by resisting temptation and not giving in. You say, Jeff, I hear you. How do I do that? And to close, I want to give you some real practical thoughts. So what do you do? What do you do when temptation comes your way? What's a battle plan when temptation comes? First, we must make it our pattern to pray. Pray. Matthew 6, how did our Savior teach us a model prayer? Lead us not into temptation. Oh, Lord, please guard me today. Protect me today. Don't lead me into temptation today. Second, we need to take the way of escape. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, the Lord will give a way of escape. And you know what? That just might mean that you have to run. Literally, sometimes. Third, we run far away. Proverbs 4, 14 and 15, when the father is speaking to his son about guarding from sin, he says, turn away from it, avoid it, pass by, go the other side. I mean, how many commands from a father to a son, don't go near the temptation, run far away. Fourth, we must endure. We have to endure. This is from James 1, verse 12. We have to endure. Why? We have to have faith for the long haul with a direction toward God and a a sturdy, unmoved confidence in our God. I will endure this like Jesus, fasting and praying for 40 days. Fifth, we have to wield the sword of the word. Our Savior did this in Matthew chapter 4. When Satan came and tempted Jesus every single time, Jesus said, it's written. It is written. Christian, do you know your Bible so well that when temptation comes, you can say, it's written. Flee immorality. It is written. Do not let any corrupting talk come out of your mouth. It is written. I must love my enemies and pray for them. It is written. Number six, we need to run to Jesus. 
Run to Jesus. Why do we run to Jesus? Because we read in Hebrews chapter 12 that Jesus is a merciful and a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God in order to make propitiation for the sins of the people because he was tempted in that which he suffered. He's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And praise be to our God for this last one. Number, I forget what number it is. What is it? Seven, okay. You know that Jesus intercedes and he's praying for you. Remember Luke 22, Jesus said to Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you. What a savior. He's praying for you, Christian. Jesus, right now, is praying for you. And all of this today, is it worth it to endure the trials? How does the temptation come my way? Where does it come from my heart? All of this brings us to our need for Christ. Not just once at the moment of salvation, but every day of our lives. Every day. So Christian, God has given you what you need to fight temptation, to resist temptation, to wield the sword. May God give us grace to do that because we know that we have a praying Savior and we have all the resources that we need found in Christ. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you have given to us.